All right, here we go. It's good to see everyone. I'm so thankful and glad that y'all are able to be here this morning. We got some very nice weather outside today, and it's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. So we're going to go ahead and get started with our Sunday school lesson. Um, I would op- I'll open us up with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. <clears throat> Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us. We recognize that your love is an everlasting love, that you have loved us before time began. And we are so thankful that we can rest in your grace and your mercy and your truth. And my prayer is that as we continue to study through your word as a, a family, as a group, as a church, that you will continue to use your word and through the power of your spirit to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. My prayer is that you will open the eyes and the hearts and the minds of all of us in this room today as we seek to know you in truth. Your word is truth. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I, I want to start with uh, a couple of uh, one verse of scripture I want you to think about. And then I'm going to quote you, a, uh, give you a quote from a man named John Bunyan. And then we'll do a quick review of what we have been talking about in the past couple of weeks. We'll look at the bulletin and then we'll get into Romans chapter nine if we have time. So Jeremiah 31 three says this. The Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. This is Jeremiah 31, 3. It says, I have loved you. This is God speaking to Israel. And he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. So God's love for his people is an everlasting love. So when did it begin? Right. For us, it began in the beginning of time. But the reality is his love for us exceeds the limits of our understanding or our time. He loved us in eternity past. He loved us in the past. He's loved us in the present. He's loved us in eternity, uh, uh, our present future and in eternity future. So his love is an all encompassing love that never fails. It's never gone away. It's never faltered or never been shaken. And so then I want to share with you a quote from a guy named John Bunyan. Again, as we're talking about these things, um, we need to understand that in our modern churches, the terms election and predestination are dirty words. Like people look at them like they're, oh, you one of those guys that believes in election and predestination. And the reality is, is they're scriptural words and we need to see what the scripture says about them and just let the scriptures be our guide to what they mean. Um, and so John Bunyan, I don't know, how many of y'all have ever heard of John Bunyan? He's a Baptist. He was a Baptist minister. He wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Y'all may have heard of that book. It's one of the best books you can ever read. It's a really wonderful book. Uh, there's plenty of movies out there on the Internet you can find of it uh, and some cartoon versions for the kids. But John Bunyan spent, uh, I think, about 14 years in a prison for preaching the gospel in England. This was at a time when it was against the law for an independent to go out and preach the gospel apart from the, the authority of the Church of England. And he went out and he was preaching the gospel in the streets and they arrested him and put him in prison. And he wrote that story while he was in prison. But think about that. To spend 14 years in prison for simply proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And he would all he had to do was recant and they would have let him out. And he never would repent. And so this is a quote from him. He said, election is as eternal as God is. It's without variableness or shadow of change. And thus it is called God's eternal purpose. We talk all the time about God having a plan for our life, right? Well, the plan for our life is God's purpose. And it's an eternal purpose. And it doesn't have change and it doesn't vary. And he says, it must stand. No works were foreseen in us that were the cause of God choosing us. Let me say that again. So it's not like God looked down the quarters of time and saw that one day Angela was going to believe on him. So because what he saw that she was going to do, that's why he loved her. What would happen in that case is God's love would be based on who? On Angela and what she does. The reality is, is God's love was there before Angela ever thought of herself. But God knew you eternally and he loved you. And that love has never changed. 
And so it says, uh, God's to, there was no work was foreseen in us. That was the cause of God's choosing and no sin in us. This is very important. No sin in us will frustrate or make our election void. What does that mean? No sin in us will frustrate or make our election void. Right. What does that do for you to know that the sin in your life is not going to be a cause of God forsaking you or abandoning you and leaving and, and not loving you? It gives you an eternal hope. And not only that, think about. So when we talk about the word election, when you go every year in November and you vote for a president, you are electing the president of the United States. Now. Joe Biden is the president of the United States, whether we like that or not. That's beside the point. But he was elected by the people, whether you want to believe it was a fair election or not. The point being is he was elected. Joe Biden is not the one that put his will upon the people of the United States and said, I elect. I am the electing president of the United States. It was not his choice that put him in that seat of power. Whose choice was it? Well, it was God, but. It was the people that voted on him. So we are the electing, and he is the elected. All right, now put that in terms of God. God is the electing, and we are the elected. It was not our choice that caused him to choose us. It was his choice that caused us to choose him. You see, and what that does is that will give you comfort in life Because you are not living your assurance out in the fact that you chose him. It's not based on what you did. It's based on what he did. And because God does not change, that gives us hope and assurance. Not only does it give us hope and assurance, but this is what else it does. Think about this. I go to heaven one day and I stand before God. And I can make these two statements. I am here because I chose God. Or I am here because God chose me. Now, which one of those statements gives God the glory? He chose me. He gets the glory for that. Who gets the glory in saying, I chose him? I do. You see how that works? Now, the reality is, is when God saved you and changed your heart, you did choose him. You are a believer of your own free will. You chose him and believed him. But in the back of your choice was his eternal choice of you. You see how that works? And so it's not a dirty word. It's not something that we should be ashamed of or embarrassed of. And not only that, it's not something we can brag about, can we? There's no way that I can brag about being elected by God. I have no right to brag about that at all. And what I also know is this. There are countless numbers of lost people out there whom he has chose. And because his eternal love is on them, somebody's going to get to them with the gospel and proclaim the gospel to them. And he's going to save them. Right. That doesn't mean that I can just say, oh, well, he already knows who he is and I don't just have to, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to pray for people. I don't have to do any of that. No, that's not the point. Because the point is the only person that knows who his chosen ones are, are who? Him. That's it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I don't know who they are. That's a secret that belongs to him. And it's not my place to pry into it or judge you and say, oh, I think you're one of God's chosen. You see, that's not the way it works. So you understand Bunyan's statement there. Election is eternal as God is. There's no variableness or shadow of turning in it. And thus it's called his eternal purpose. It must stand. No works were foreseen in us that were the cause of God's choosing us, and no sin in us shall frustrate or make his election void. Okay, what I want to do is I want you to be comfortable with that term because it's all through the Bible. Yes? So are you saying there's people out there who just, it doesn't matter what they do, God didn't chose them, so they're... 
Okay, yeah, and so when the, that part of the decree bothers me and you as fallen individuals because it's like, well, they don't get a chance. So the, but here's the reality. How many of Adam's children deserve salvation? Okay, so according to God's justice and his holy standard, how many uh, deserve hell? All of us. So under the when Adam fell, he brought all of his people with him into that condemnation. That guilt was placed upon Adam and that guilt was placed upon all of his seed. This is Romans 5. If you go read Romans 5, it tells us that in Adam all have sinned, all deserve God's justice. So the reality is, were it not for the grace of God, how many people would be damned? Everybody. But what we know is that God loves a people. We don't know who they are. And he reaches down into a world full of people that deserves hell and says, no, I love you too much. And he saves them. All right. We're going to get in this today because what happens is me and you in our fallen state go, well, that's not fair. Right. But the reality is you and I are not looking for fair. We're looking for mercy. Because fair means I go to hell. But Christ died on the cross to save a people for himself. And you, as an individual believer, are going to have to determine for yourself, according to what the scriptures teach, who are the people he died to save. There's some people that believe he died to save everybody. So he died to save every single person that ever lived. All right. So what that means is, is that his death on the cross for everybody was not good enough because some people don't get saved. Like some people go to hell. Because they choose. They choose not. They right. Choose. So they choose. It's an act of unbelief. They do not believe. And the Bible tells us that unbelief is a sin. Unbelief is a sin. Well, how many sins did Jesus pay for on the cross? All of them. So what that means is is that sin of unbelief was covered in his death on the cross. So if that's the standard we use, then that means how many people are going to be saved? I think, I don't think it would be everybody, because I think you'd have to, you're, like you said, it's free will. We have to accept you. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if there's somebody out there that just says, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in heaven or hell, then they're going to go to hell. Okay. So I think they have to, they have to. So, so then their salvation is based upon their choice. I see what you're saying. Not- Again, I'm throwing this out here because I want you to struggle with it. I want you to wrestle with this. And I have been wrestling. Yeah, I, I, and, and again, I, there's a reason for struggling and wrestling with this because we need to go to the Word and see what the Word teaches. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go to Romans 9. And it, 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 go, it wrestle Paul in his... Uh, exposition is going to wrestle with this statement himself. And so let's look really quickly at um, Romans 8, 28 through 39. That's what we talked about last time we were together. Uh, and before we do that, so get your Bibles turned to Romans 8. Really quickly, I'll share with you um, what's in the bulletin this morning. It says, although God or Matthew 25, 34 says this. This is Matthew chapter 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right. Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom which was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. So this is a parable and it's talking about a king who is inviting a people. And what it's talking about is the final day. So it's judgment day when God separates the sheep from the goats. And what is the king going to say? Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit... Now, what do we do to inherit something? Nothing. Inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you before the foundation of the world. So your eternal salvation is an inheritance. And the new heavens and the new earth is an inheritance. It is a gift from God. 
And on the final day, he's going to invite you to come in and receive the inheritance that you have been given. We know that in an inheritance, somebody has to die in order for you to get that inheritance. Well, who died to give you that inheritance? Jesus Christ. Yeah, Jesus Christ. God. He died on the cross so that you might be a, a joint heir, is the way Paul puts it, a joint heir with Christ Jesus. So who gets the inheritance? Jesus. And because he died for you, you are a joint heir with him. We receive the inheritance that he earned for us. All right. Now, the confession says this. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet he has not decreed anything because of what he foresaw as future or as that which would come to pass upon conditions. So God's decree and what he says will happen is not based on what he sees his creatures doing. You see, in other words, if he's looking down through the corridors of time and he sees this and sees that and then he bases his decree on what he sees, then it's not based on his will. It's based on the will of his creatures. God's prophecies, when God made a prophecy, so think about that. God made a prophecy in the book of Psalms uh, that one of his own people would betray him. Well, who was the one that betrayed him? Judas. Judas. All right. So the reality is Judas was going to betray him. And God made a prophecy that said he would betray him. But God decreed that before Judas was ever born, before Judas ever knew life. And he made that statement. And so Judas played out that decree. Now, if God cast Judas into hell, why does he cast him into hell? Because of his sin and because of his unbelief. But Judas did what he did because he did what he chose to do. He wanted to sell Jesus out. Now, after he sold Jesus out, he went and wept. Remember, he wept bitterly. He, he went and, but he didn't only weep. He did what? He killed himself. Peter weeped bitterly and came back and was restored to Christ. So Peter was struggling with a godly sorrow. God granted him repentance and he realized he was wrong and he turned back from his wrong. Judas was sorry that he did what he did because he knew the punishment that was coming. Judas was not sorry because he had hurt Jesus, Judas was sorry because he was going to get punished for what he did. There's a lot of people in prison that are there, and they're not sorry that they did what they did. They're sorry they got caught. And that's the difference in a child of God and a child of the world. All of us are condemned by God's law. But the child of God realizes that the judgment that uh, we deserve for our breaking of that law was placed upon our Lord and Savior, and it breaks our heart to think that we are the cause of him being nailed to that cross. Isn't there somewhere in the Bible that says God doesn't, doesn't want anybody to perish? Yeah, it is not his desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And you, And so what you have to do is you need to determine who that all is, because all people do not come to repentance. Right? Right. He does, but he wishes. Right. So the... Not, yes, not only that, so it, they, remember God has a permissive will and he has a decorative will. His permissive will is the things that he allows to happen. God said, God's decorative will says thou shalt not kill. But God, yes ma'am. So the the proclamation goes to all. In other words, when I preach the gospel, who am I to preach it to? Everyone. And everyone, I preach it to everyone. Why? Because I don't know who his called are. The general call goes to everyone. It goes to everyone. And God calls a people to himself through that general call. You see? 
So I make the call to all. And between the proclamation of God's promise and the power of the Holy Spirit, God draws a people to himself. All right. So I know the tension that's in the room right now, but this is what I want you to think about. You do realize that there are a countless number of people who never, ever heard of Jesus and died without him. All through the history, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, all of those ites that were fighting the children of Israel in the land of Canaan, none of them were ever given the opportunity to believe in God. They never heard the, the truth. And they died without it. And there are people today all over the world dying without it. There are still thousands of people groups all over the world that have never heard the name Jesus. Yes. But the Ikes draw from God's people. That's exactly right. And not only that, but there were a few in there that got saved, wasn't there? Like um, uh, Rahab the harlot. She wasn't of the children of Israel, but she was a believer. Why? Because God drew her her to himself. All right. So when you think about think about all of the people that have died without ever hearing the gospel. And and it's happened like we we can't deny that reality that all through the history of the world, there have been people that died without hearing the name Jesus or knowing God. Now, will they be able to stand in hell and ball their fist up and scream at God and say, that's not fair. You never gave me a chance to choose. Will they be able to do that? In our in our fallen nature is like, yeah, like they didn't get a chance. All right. But we can think about it in the same way as the, the infants that we've been talking about. God saves his people. It doesn't matter how old they are or what their mind state of their mind is or their ability to choose. God can reach down into the womb and pull and save a child who has never believed. Whose work is it that saves that child? God. And it's God's work that reaches out all over the world and saves the people to himself. So, again, what we're wrestling with here today and what we're struggling with is this. Can the will of man override the will of God? But in our fallen nature, we're saying yes. Because what we're saying is, is that I have to choose him. Well, the reality is, is that every single believer that has ever lived and died and gone to heaven has chosen to believe in God. Every single one of them. It was of their free will. But what we learn in Scripture is that it's God's will to reach down into the world and set your will free to believe him. He reaches down into the world full of people who are rebels and say, I hate God. I don't want anything to do with him. Just leave me alone. I'll be moral. I'll be good. I'll earn a living for my family and be a good guy. And I'll 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 try to do the right things and I'll try not to lie and I won't drink and I won't smoke and I'll try to be good. But you leave me alone and let me be good in myself. I don't need your goodness. I have my own. And it's not going to do any. But most of the world lives like most people. If you ask them, they'll tell you I'm a pretty good person. But what does the Bible say? There's none righteous. No, not one. No one is good but God is what it says. And so what God does is a good and gracious God reaches down into a world full of people that deserves hell. And he says, no, I love you too much to let you live that way. And he pulls the people out of this fallen world and sets them free to believe. But then you're saying there's some that he's never going to do that to? He's never going to reach down and save? Because he decreed that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Now you're going to say that's not fair. And that's exactly what that's exactly what Paul's going to say here. We're going to see that again. When we talk about God's decree, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we need to remember three things that we talked about them in the past. God is good. And God is in control. 
And so who created me and you? Right? So who is the potter? And who is the clay? All right. Now, what Paul's going to say in this passage, we're going to see here in a minute, is going to say, who are you, O clay, to argue with the potter and say, why did you make me like this? All right. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and look at that. Let's go to Romans chapter nine. Hmm? Why do you make me fat? Yeah. And he's going to say, you chose to go get that extra piece of chicken. That's exactly right. Go. Listen, this is something. This the struggle that you're having is real and it should be. Right. So we often pray, or at least I do, that um, God will um, soften somebody's heart or open their heart yes. to hear right. God. Right. And so what you're asking God to do is to change their heart so they'll stop not believing in him and believe in him. Um, God is those choices have already been made in eternity past. I don't know who his chosen are. That's his secret and that belongs to him. Who am I to pray for? Everyone. And not only that, but you as a mom are specifically praying for him to open the heart of your child and him to open the heart of your husband. Like right now, does God have to do that because you pray that to him? No. No. We come to him seeking his mercy and recognizing that he is God. And we let him have control over that situation. And he's going to do what's best. Um, we were talking about this the other day. Yeah. Wayne uh, said, speaking of someone who was lost and, and died, he said, you know, I wish I could have done more. I should have went and said more to them. I should have shared the gospel more with them. I should have been kinder to them. I should have helped them to know God. Yes, very much so. Like as a fallen human being who knows God's grace in your life and has his forgiveness in your life, your desire is definitely for all people to know God's salvation. All right? So the grieving that we have because of lost loved ones who have died and gone to hell is a real grieving, and it should be, because we, the, the question is for me, did I do enough? Like, did I allow them to see God's love in my life? Did I share God's truth with them? Was I honest with them? And those are definitely part of the fact that we're responsible. But I can also lay my head on the pillow of his sovereignty and know that he saved who he's going to save. You, you see, in other words, like now that person who has died, their eternity is in God's hand, not mine. So there, there was a balance there in what Wayne was saying to me. Yes, we should grieve for the lost. We should pray for the lost. And what we are actually doing is we're saying God changed their will so that they will stop running from you and believe you. I mean, that's really what you're playing. When you're asking God to change someone's heart, you're asking him to flip their will on his head and get them to turn away from sin and self and turn to you. But my prayers don't do that, do they? What does that? What changes a person's will? God, his regeneration. Now, he's given you a responsibility. It does not negate second means, which which means you have to pray. We're commanded to pray for the lost. And I'm commanded to share the gospel with all people that come into my, my realm, that, that he places in my path. And those are the means that he uses to save his people. The prayers of his people and the proclamation of his promise to the world all around. And I am responsible for that. And I should feel that weight. There should never be a time in my life where I go, oh, well, God's going to save who he wants to save and I'll just leave it at that. I don't have to do anything because that's not what that's not the way it works. God used Sunday school teachers and preachers and parents and loved ones and friends all of my life. He was drawing me to himself and I was running as hard as I could away from him. And God used those messages from those preachers when I was Zane's age sitting in a pool in a pew. 
God used those people to bring me to salvation. But it was God that changed my heart and changed my will. You see how that works? And so maybe God chose everybody. Maybe he did. It wasn't just a Well, so if that's the case, if God chose everybody, then what would be the natural everybody would be saved. That's not, you know. But there again, we have the free will to say we are going to take right. accepting or we're not. Our will is only as free as our nature. We I've talked about that in the past. What do I mean when I say that? My will is only as free as my nature. That's what you can do. Like you said, you can't get on that roof. And fly because I'm not a bird. That's not my nature. My nature is to succumb to gravity and break something when I fall off. All right? So one of the things that we have to realize is how devastating the fall away from God was and what sin has actually done to mankind. We... The natural man, the one who does not have a regenerate heart, hates God. And literally inside of himself, he has his fist balled up and his teeth grinding saying, no, I will not come to you. Because if you are God, I'm not. If you are in control, I'm not. And in our fallen nature, we don't want anything with anybody to control us. We heard the saying, God doesn't want robots, right? Y'all heard that before? Like, God doesn't want a robot. Well, the Bible tells us that in the fall, in the fall of man, he said that men are slaves to sin. You, Before God saved you, before God changed your heart and made you a child of God, you are a slave to sin. What does that mean you do? You serve it. And it beats you down and it keeps you in bondage. And no matter what you want to do, you're going to do what it tells you to do. Sin is your taskmaster. And God, who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in trespasses of sin, has made us alive together in Christ. So he reaches down, just like he did to the children of Israel and Egypt, and said what? Let my people go. And that's what he did in your own individual life. He reached down and said, you're mine and you're going to be free. And when he does that, he changes our heart. So what happens when he changes your heart? What happens to your nature when he changes your heart? Changes. Your nature changes. It's like he gives you wings. Paul, uh, John Bunyan, actually, there's a little poem. Uh, it, it, there's a, a poem that... John Bunyan says, it says, run, John, run, the law commands, but neither gives me feet or hands. But then he says something, I can't remember how the rest of the point goes, but God's grace and his salvation give me wings and allow me to fly. So the law doesn't set me free because the law just constantly reminds me of how much I'm in sin. But once God sets my heart free, then the law becomes something that gives me wings and allows me to fly and be who he created me to be. You see how that works? When he changes your heart, now your desire is to please him. And what is the path that he says pleases him? To walk in his what? If you love me, obey my commandments. And so when he saves you and sets you free, he changes your nature And gives you the will and the desire to walk in his ways. Right? Now, I don't want to bring up any personal names, but I am definitely praying for the salvation of lost ones in our congregation. And I'm thinking of someone specifically right now in particular that literally is enslaved to addiction. And they can't get away from it. Like they have literally cried and said, I can't stop. And he's telling the truth. The only way that he is going to change is if God changes his nature. God is going to have to change his heart and literally put new desires in him or he will stay enslaved to those drugs that he's doing. Or alcohol that he's doing. Nothing's going to set him free from that but God's grace. Why? Because his nature is enslaved to the addiction. 
Every one of us in this room know lost loved ones. And what we need to understand is how lost they are and how wicked and evil and enslaving sin truly is. And no matter how much you plead with them, no matter how much you try to change them, no matter how much you try to shake them and get them to see what they're doing, they don't see it, do they? Why? Because they're blinded to it. And that's what sin does to us. And so sometimes you and I, as Christians who come every week and sing all the songs and and listen to the sermons and, and be kind to our neighbors, some of us, we forget what it is that God actually rescued us from. And God reminds us of that in our loved ones that are still lost. Now, I could just give up hope and just say, well, that guy's never going to trust Christ. You wicked and foul man to think something like that. God saved Paul, he was a murderer. God saved Moses, he was a murderer. God saved Abraham, he was a liar and an idol, idolater. And God saved me and you. But it was through his grace. And the truth of the matter is, had he not reached down into my life through the prayers of others and through the preaching of his word from Sunday school teachers and preachers all of my life, he reached down in his grace through those means and through the power of his spirit and said, no, I love you too much to let you keep living like that. And he saved me and he changed my nature. And still to this day, every day, I still struggle with sin. The difference is, is now I struggle with it when in the past I just embraced it. But every time I think about my past life, I'm reminded, but for the grace of God, I'm right back in it again. And so we need to understand that God has set us free. And that was his work. And once he sets me free, once he gives me that new heart, I now have the will to choose him. So think about that when you're praying for your lost loved ones. It should humble me and force me to my knees and say, God, if you do not do something, they're going to die. It's not up to me, God. It's up to you. And how many of us have prayed, I've done everything that I can do. Well, stop doing it and let him do it. And leave it up to him. And what you and I should be able to do is lay our head down on our pillow tonight and rest in the fact that God will save his people. That doesn't negate the fact that you need to be praying for them. And it does not negate the fact that you need to be sharing his word with them. And it does not negate the fact that you need to be a living example of God's grace. All of those things are your responsibility. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Now, we got we got like two minutes left. I want you to look really quickly with me in verse Romans chapter nine. And again, next week, if we got time, we're going to start at the beginning of nine and go all the way through. But look at verse 14. Verse 14 says this. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now, what this is saying is in verse 13, it says, just as written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. So God said to, uh, uh, God says, uh, the older is going to serve the younger. He was talking about Jacob and Esau. We've been studying this in our Bible study, in our Monday Bible classes, right? And what what God is saying is, I love Jacob, I hated Esau. God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. Now look what it says. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? God forbid, or may it never be. Some of your scriptures say God forbid. Yeah, please let that not be the case. For God said, so is there unrighteousness with God? So if God does not reach down and save one, is he being unrighteous? No, he's being just. You see? And so this is what he says next, 16. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures say, for this very purpose, I raised you up, Pharaoh, 
in order to demonstrate my power in you and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Now watch what Paul says next. Now you're going to say to me, this is what Paul, this is not me, this is Paul. I'm not making this up. You're going to say to me, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? In other words, what we're saying now is the reason they're in hell is because God willed them into hell. You see, that's what Paul's arguing right here. He says, uh, you're going to say to me, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary. Au contraire, mon frere, right? Who are you? Oh, man, to answer back to God, will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter, now who's the potter? God, look, this is so important. Does the potter not have authority over the clay? And from that clay, he makes from the same lump one vessel for honor, and he makes another vessel for dishonor. And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction? And in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand in glory. All right, so this is what he's saying. God is the potter, and he took from all the clay... One big lump of clay and he made some vessels for honor and some vessels he made for dishonor. And the vessels of honor, he's going to show the world how merciful he is. And with the vessels of dishonor, he's going to show how just he is. So think about that on judgment day. When he, God the judge, separates the sheep from the goats. How many of the sheep are going to heaven? All of them. How many of the ghosts are going to hell? All of them. But there is nobody uh, that is his sheep that says, I deserve to be here. His judgment is going to glorify his mercy. You see how that works? Well, all of the ones that get cast into hell are going to be a manifestation of his what? His justice. So how many people that go to hell are going to be there and say, oh, I don't deserve to be here? No, they're going to know they deserve to be there. Because God is a just God. God, Right. So, again, I'm not making this up. This is what... Paul is saying here. This is the argument that Paul is saying. Who are you, O man, to argue back to God? Can he not make from the same lump of clay whatever he wants? He makes one vessel of mercy and one vessel of destruction. And he's the potter and he's the one that makes them. And so I'll finish with that uh, with one last creedal statement there in 3 3. This is what it says. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained. To eternal life through Jesus Christ. To the praise of his glorious grace. And others being left. In the act of their sin. To their just condemnation. To the praise of his glorious justice. So you see what it's saying? There is a group of people. That receive God's mercy. And there are a group of people. That receive God's justice. And they are all from the same lump of clay. We all come from who? Adam. We all come from Adam. And so there are vessels of mercy and there are vessels of destruction. And the vessels that he created for mercy are uh, an expression of his grace. And the vessels that he creates for justice are going to be a demonstration of his justice. And I am commanded to let God be God. There is not one single person that's going to be saved that is ever going to be able to glory in their own goodness. Their salvation and their eternal life is going to be based on nothing more than God's grace alone. And those that are judged 
are judged because he is a holy, holy, holy God. And he can't let sin go. So, again, this is some of the deepest things that you will ever struggle with in your life. Because what you're struggling with is, is do I even have a choice? And the answer is, of course, you have a choice. Yes, you have a choice. But every one of us in this room, if you are a born-again, blood-bought child of God, you choose to love him. You choose to serve him. You choose to believe him. But your choice was based on his eternal choice of you. He's the first cause. We're the second cause. All right. So, this is something that you have to wrestle with yourself. I pray and I hope that instead of just basing what you think on how you feel, I pray that you will go to these scriptures and read that passage in Romans 9 for yourself. Like I literally did not, did I make up any of that? Did I read it just like it says in the thing? All right, so what shall we say? Is God unrighteous? Was God unrighteous to love Jacob and hate Esau. Is God unrighteous for hating Esau? <laughs> it's a tough question then, then. But that's why Paul's put it here. Because God's word cuts at us at our hearts. And makes us realize that he's an eternal God and we're not God. <laughs> Again. And the reality is this. On judgment day, none of us are going to be looking for fair. None of us. Great question. Do I love you, Angela? Yes. Do I love you in the same way that your husband loves you? No, that's called adultery, and then I would be in trouble. I, I, now, I'm not making light of that. I'm being serious. Do I love your kids? Yes, very much so. But I, there's no way that I could ever love Christy like you do. So. God loves all of his creation. He created it all. But there is an everlasting love placed upon his chosen ones. Jesus is the groom and the church is his bride. And if Jesus loves the world... The world, as much as he loves his bride, then he's like Jacob. He's got two eyes. You see how that works? So when he says to Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love, he means it. And he means it to you as his child. I've loved you with an everlasting love. And so... My prayer, again, when when I first started, when God's grace started opening my eyes to this reality, it was humbling, and this was a, probably about a six-year wrestling that I had with God before I was willing to yield to this, to, to what the scriptures are actually teaching. Because what we like to think is, We like to think that Jesus died on the cross and he died and paid for every sin of every person that ever lived. And now that all now there's this opportunity. Jesus died on the cross to make the opportunity for us to be saved. And then we have to choose him in order for that opportunity to take place. Well, the Catholics teach that, too. It's called the treasury of marriage. They believe that all of the work that Jesus did and all of the work that all of the saints in history have done have all been collected together in a big treasury of righteousness. And if you pray or if you give money to the church or if you uh, do alms or go and make confession, then you can cash in on some of that and get some forgiveness. Yes. So, and we got to, we literally have four minutes before we got to stop. But this, this is important stuff. So I'll, I'll end with this question and I'll ask you this. Did Jesus die to save you, or did Jesus die to give you the opportunity of salvation? So you see the difference in those two statements. Did Jesus die to save you? 
Were you on his mind when he was pouring his blood out on that cross? Or did he just die and say, well, what he said was, it is finished. He did not say it's now up to you. And, and, I'm, and we, we giggle at that, but it's, I'm being serious. That's the question that you're going to have to answer on your own as you struggle with these verses of Scripture yourself. Did Jesus die to save me or did Jesus just die to make salvation a possibility? If he just died to make it a possibility, then who is my salvation dependent upon? Me. And that's where the whole rub is. Is my salvation dependent on me or is it dependent on God? Or is it dependent on both of us? Right? We, yeah, he, he gives us that joy. So salvation is not like Jesus diving in the river and saving you from drowning, swimming out there and grabbing you and pulling you back to the dock. That's not what salvation looks like. Salvation looks like him diving in and you're on the bottom dead and the crabs are already eating you. You're dead in trespass and sin. And Jesus dives in and pulls you up and puts breath into you and gives you new life and heals you completely. Like it's his work. Like he, it's not like he throws the life raft out for you and you hold on. No, he dives in and he grasps you and he pulls you out of sin and saves you. Okay, so again, I hope my hope for this is that this will challenge you to get into the scriptures on your own and believe what you believe and why you believe it. You can. I, I'm going to leave it up to you. I, like I'm not uh, the Pope. I'm not going to sit here and like force you to, to say this is what you got to believe. I'm going to present the scriptures to you and say this is what the scriptures say. Now you wrestle with it and you ask God to help you to see what it is you're supposed to believe. And that's the only fair way to do that. Like here's the scriptures. This is what it says. Now you take it and wrestle with it on your own. And I can promise you this, if you truly wrestle with the scriptures, you will wind up just like Jacob. You will never walk the same again. Amen. He will cripple you and give you a new way to walk. And it's a constant wrestling. Like there's things that I wrestle with in scripture every day. I see new things that I didn't see before. And we need to be doing that. These are the important things. Like the Super Bowl, who wins that tonight? It's not important. <laughs> Two years from now, you won't remember. But these are the important things. These are the things that we need to know. Amen. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time together. <clears throat> this is certainly a, a challenging and often confusing topic. But the reality is, is that you are God and we are your people and we are your people because of your grace. My prayer is that you would help us to understand how sinful sin is. And how graceful your grace is. I pray that you will help us to trust you. I pray for each and every one of my brothers and sisters in Christ. That have heard this lecture today. This lesson. These, uh, the sharing of your scriptures. I pray that you will use these words to help us to know you and ourselves better. And that you will help us to draw closer and nearer to you. Through your love and your mercy and your grace. In Christ Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen.